Good morning. Come on. Yeah. Let's have a clap one more time. Come on, Lord Jesus. That was good. I was a family pastor for a few years at a, at a church um, a handful of years ago, and a friend of mine listened to the service, and he said, y'all are a clappy church. <laughs> I don't know, but I, come on, you know. We go to sports games, and we raise all manner of fuss and yelling and whatever. I'm like, come on, I'm, I'm way more than just a sports fan, right? I'm a follower of Jesus. It's like, come on, Jesus. So anyway, if you're new in here and you're not used to some loud worship or some whatever, then uh, welcome to the funny spiritual journey that we're in. So uh, the Lord is here with us. Um, We don't much care about church for the sake of church, but we really do care about connecting people with the very heart of God, connecting people with one another, um, and then gathering where He is. Yeah? Okay. So um, let's see. I am... In Exodus 25, I'm going to start, like I kind of have been doing in a number of these, um, uh, I guess, preaches in in two New Testament passages, but if you want to go ahead and turn to Exodus 25, um, and I I guess I should probably say I'm so grateful it's Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. It's it's actually one of my favorite um, of our U.S. holidays because I feel like it's less um, about me or you, you know what I'm saying? Like we're giving... Thanks, right. And who's that too? Yeah, it's just great. Although I do think Black Friday is trying to like take that from us, you know, it now spreads out the entire month and I don't know how that happened. But anyway, I do love Thanksgiving. So, okay. So I'm going to start in Colossians 2.17. I'm going to start in Hebrews uh, 10.1. We're going to look at those two verses. Then we're going to jump into Exodus 25. I keep thinking, in fact, if I, my original plan uh, unfolded the right way, um, we would have been done with Exodus already, but I keep getting into these chapters, and I'm, I'm sort of in my own worship, in my own journey with him, I'm amazed at what he's doing. I'm amazed at who he is. And, you know, one of the things that, that I do, even in the morning, I get up early, um, and I walk out to my coffee maker first thing, and I grind some coffee and put some boiling water on and whatever, and in that moment, I go, Lord Jesus, good morning. You believe that? I say, Holy Spirit, Good morning. Heavenly Father, good morning. And, and then I usually posture my heart and I just go, Father, would you speak to me? So that's what I want us to do today. So let's first go, Lord Jesus, good morning. Ready? One, two, three. Lord Jesus, good morning. And then, Father, would you speak to me? That's the way you ought to read the Bible, by the way. Right? And with an expectation, because there's something, just spiritual principle here, there's something about heaven that cannot resist. So heaven being the, the supernatural kingdom of God, um, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they cannot resist a hungry people. Uh, when Alan, uh, one of our overseers, was here a few Sundays ago, he walked out and he said, man, that was like, I had more fun preaching to that crowd than I've had preaching to any church in a long time. They were hungry. Come on, hungry. I hope you come hungry and you leave hungrier, okay? All right, so here we go. Okay, back into it. Colossians 2.17 
and uh, then Hebrews 10.1, and I actually forgot to tell you. Okay, so we're going to go through um, chapter 25. We're taking a look at the tabernacle. We're going to look at the Ark of the Covenant. Anybody ever seen the old Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Come on, a few of you. Okay, we're gonna, we'll, we'll actually mention that just a quick second. We're going to look at the table of showbread or showbread, and then we're going to look at the lampstand. And, um, well, let's, let's start with uh, Colossians 2.17, then we'll get into it. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Here's what it says. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a, a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So what's that making reference to? The what? The law. Who said that? Come on, Ed, absolutely. The law. Okay, so all that is law stuff. That's what we've been going through. Okay, so he's saying, don't let anyone judge you, this is Paul writing, based on what you, anything related to the law. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So what is the law? Of what? Jesus. Jesus. A shadow. So if I'm out on a warm, sunny day and the sun's behind me, I'm cast, my body's casting a shadow in front of me. The shadow is not necessarily real, but it is a, it's a real depiction of what is, right? So, so that's kind of the way I want you to understand, even as we're looking at this today, and that's why we parked on it here for a minute. Let's take a quick look at Hebrews 10.1. Here's what um, probably also Paul wrote. Um, I like to think it's Paul. Um, some would disagree, but Hebrews 10.1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. What's the good things that are coming? Christ Jesus, that's right. Not the realities themselves, for the reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. So he goes on, and, and, but what he's basically saying is, if the sacrifices of lambs and sheep and goats and the whole thing were enough, then Christ wouldn't have needed to come. But he came and paid it all once and for all. Okay, so let's go back now to Exodus 25, and I want to propose to you, because we're jumping into the tabernacle, so we've seen in this book of Exodus, um, we've seen the God who saves, then we've seen the God who accompanies, and now we're moving into this section, this is the God who actually dwells among, tabernacles among, or indwells, okay? So that's what we also see in the New Testament in the book of Acts. You've got a God who saves you, you've got a God who accompanies you, and then you've got a God who actually indwells you. We'll, we'll eventually go through the book of Acts at some point, and we can take a look at that same pattern. But what I want you to see is this God who stands outside of time, and so the same God that is bringing the same revelation in the New Testament is the same God who's bringing this revelation in the Old Testament, and everything in the Old Testament is a prophetic shadow of what's coming. Yeah, I got it? So it is like, why, why would we even talk about the tabernacle? In fact, I was even wrestling with this as I was putting it together, but there's some 50 chapters, give or take, dedicated to the tabernacle in the Bible. You believe that? Some in Exodus, some in Leviticus, some in Deuteronomy, a few in Numbers. 50 chapters. Anybody know how many chapters are dedicated to creation? couple. Yeah, depends on how you count them, a couple, two, three, whatever. But 50 chapters are dedicated to this tabernacle with all sorts of detail. So I had to go, Lord Jesus, would you speak to me here? But it's a shadow, and if you can actually begin to see this um, tabernacle that God is, is, is sort of um, creating and asking Moses and these artisans to create uh, as the Lord Jesus, it's this prophetic um, foretelling or prophetic foretelling of what's coming. Yeah? Okay, so let's dig in. Um, 
and then I'll, then I'll keep going. Okay, so Exodus 25, let's start here in verse 1. Um, we're going to read, we'll break this into four little chunks, and we'll pause as we go along. Okay, the Lord said to Moses, now where is Moses, just by way of recollection? He's at the top of? He's at the top of a mountain. Now remember, there's two and a half million people, which is about the same size, about the same number of people that live in Chicago. So imagine Chicago went on an 11-month camping trip at the base of a mountain in a desert. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? Okay, so two and a half million people are there, then 70 of them go up the mountain and pause, and then uh, Joshua and Moses go up, and they pause again, and Joshua pauses, then Moses goes all the way into the top. And Moses is hanging out on the top of the mountain, and um, he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights without food, which is interesting. And then, finally, the Lord says to Moses, while he's hanging out on this mountain, so here we go, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering uh, for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold. Now, anybody remember where they got that gold? Egypt. They've actually totally plummeted and pilfered Egypt on their way out just by saying, hey, give me your gold. And guess what the Egyptians did? Please. Here, take it all. Get out. Go, 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 go. That's what was happening. Gold, silver, and bronze. Now, let me, let me pause here just a minute. Um, I have nothing against um, passing an offering plate, but we don't do that. Have you ever noticed that? And that's not just because of COVID. You know, when, um, let me shift the metaphor and then we'll jump right back to here. Um, When the yellow truck goes out, one of the things that we'll never do on that yellow truck is put out a tip jar. Anybody know why? Some people give a tip. Somebody will stick a 20 or a 10 over here in the front seat or whatever. Somebody just like, they, they have to give something. But why don't we put a tip jar out? So they don't feel obligated to give. So they know this is truly a gift. So a lot of times I'll go somewhere or do something, and there's a chip dar- tip jar, and you're like, oh, well, I guess it's man, free, compliment. I better put some money in there. You know. So, so you almost feel like you're buying something that you're not buying, right? Okay, for me, and I'm not saying we'll never pass a plate, but I'm just saying there, I don't want anyone coming to church, um, and when that pa- plate gets passed, you go, oh, gosh, I better, I need to give something, Right? It, so, so all of a sudden, you, you take something that should be um, a heart posture before God, an act of worship, a command even to give because of what he's given you, and you, you all of a sudden put it on display before people. So that's why the box is like tucked away over there, and people are like, how do you give around here? We make it hard. Because <laughs> this is a God that is actually interested in our hearts. You heard what I'm saying? I mean, I, I actually, I'm, the, the way you deal with your finances is essentially important merely because it's an indicator of where your heart really is. I don't want anybody sticking a five or a one or whatever in the plate because they're like, oh, I got to give. I came to church today. Isn't it neat that in this same thing, you are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give? There's the salt box box out there. Give as he leads you. (coughs) I'm going to cough. Okay. (coughs) As I choke on my water. Thank you. Okay. (coughs) I've never done this before, Daniel. Great time to choke on water in the middle of COVID, right? Yeah, thank you, thank you. Those of you watching online, aren't you glad you're online? (laughs) Just kidding, 
Just kidding. Sorry. Maybe that's a bad joke. Okay, so tell them to give gold, silver, and bronze. Verse 4, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. Goat hair, verse 5, ram skins dyed red, and another durable leather. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and uh, the fragrance incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate, which is fascinating. We'll deal with that another Sunday. Um, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Okay, so a couple of things I think I, I want you to see or know here, first of all, that as we go into this, there is such ornate detail. We're about to read about the ark, and there's such like God has designed this thing um, in such a way that, that he is telling Moses, do this and make it like this and design it like this. And I, I think just these are almost simple observations, but I think if you can begin to think of this loving Father God in this way, it could transform the way not only you think about God, but it may transform the way you walk with God, which may transform the way you interact with your family and the people that are walking with you. Does that make sense? Okay, so a couple observations. God has an eye for detail. Some of you don't believe that. He's got an eye for detail. Just look what we're about. I mean, wait till we get into this. He takes as much care over the little things as the big things. I think it's fascinating about who he is. Number two that I'd make a note here is God is very simple and straightforward. In other words, things are um, effective, they're efficient, they're not overly complex. He doesn't make things overly hard or difficult. If you want to um, understand and walk with him, he makes it simple and straightforward. Number three, God's an orderly God. You could even say he's a mathematical God, because that's what you're about to see here, the numbers about how everything should be created. Number four that I think is fascinating is God is more interested um, in quality than quantity. It's fascinating what you're going to see here, because he's more interested in, in the quality of what's being done than the quantity. So the tabernacle that we're, we're reading about here is not like church. It's not like a church, okay? The tabernacle, um, it's this big rectangle thing, and it's got an outer court, and then an inner court, and then a holy of holies. And it's the, it's the place in which God dwells among his people. So it's not a, um, it's, it should not be likened uh, to today's church, okay? Like a church building. So let me, let me kind of almost give you a spoiler alert to the end, and then we'll, then we'll come back. So in the Old Testament, God first dwells um, on a mountain. Um, then he has this tent built, and he dwells in the tent. Then uh, there's a temple built by a guy named Solomon, and he dwells in the temple. And then Jesus comes, and he, when Jesus dies on that cross, the, the, the curtain that we're about to read about actually gets torn. And when that curtain is torn, it's symbolic that the presence of God will no longer dwell in buildings or houses made by human hands. Okay? So where then does God dwell? Say, I am the sanctuary. You know, I, I don't have a huge uh, issue with this, but I don't love when churches call the place where they worship the sanctuary. Call it an auditorium, call it a gathering place, call it a bunch of chairs, because God is not interested in, he is not dwelling in the room. Who's he dwelling in? Me. He's dwelling in you. He's dwelling in us. So you become the sanctuary. You become the place where God dwells. So this is not only the tabernacle and what we're reading about is not just a picture of King Jesus. It also becomes a picture of who? Yeah. You. Me. Oh my goodness. Okay. 
<clears throat> Last thing I want to point out um, is that God is artistic. My, uh, our, our little Amelia, uh, she's four, and she's an angel in a um, dance today. She, that's why they're not here. They're actually practicing right now at Keenan Auditorium. And uh, Corey Smith, there's a gal who, uh, who has a dance uh, company here in town. And they're all um, believers, and I love that Amelia is involved in this, and they're recovering the arts. Who created the arts? MJ sitting here is a beautiful artist. Some of you might not know that. But art in its finest form is a representation and a reflection of the original artist, the creator. I'd love to see a church and churches that effectively recovered the arts. I mean, how amazing. This is the God who created it. Something else that I would want to just simply mention here as we, as we move into this is um, there's, there's three uh, types of metals and all of this. There are people who get so far into the extrapolation of meaning from the tabernacle, you can almost get lost in it. And I'm, I, I, I will not advocate that you probably go that far, but I will say with unequivocal, um, you, you know, just like boldness that this is absolutely a picture of Jesus. But you go from bronze in, in the uh, most outer parts of the tabernacle to silver. And as you get closer and closer to the presence of God, what's there? Gold. Gold. And so you could even see this uh, sort of moving from the mundane to the holy or moving from the less costly to the more costly. In fact, at the end of the chapter, it's kind of fascinating. If you look at the end of chapter 25, it says, make this lampstand with a talent of pure gold. Anybody know how many pounds a talent is? Anybody? Come on. It's about 75. Some, some people say 100 pounds. So gold right now trades at like $1,900 a pound or $1,850 or something. I did the math. That's a $3 million hunk of gold. So, so don't get the idea, even though the tabernacle is like 150 feet by 75 feet, it's not very big, but it is costly. It is costly. I mean, it is like, wow. So this is God, the artist, sort of at work here. Um, the, the tabernacle to me says uh, two things. It, it, it tells simultaneously um, how near God is to his people. Have you ever been on a camping trip with a group? Anybody? You ever been on a camping trip with a group of people? Yeah, a few of you. Brave souls. Oh my goodness. Okay, so uh, they're on a camping trip and they could have stood outside of their tent, stepped outside of their tent at any point. And what could they have looked at? The tabernacle. It's right there. Like, God is with them. So simultaneously, the tabernacle is going to tell of how near God is to them, but it also tells of how far God is away from them because they can only enter that most holy place one time per year on the Day of Atonement. So one guy, one time a year, with the blood of, uh, of sheep, enters that most holy place. So there's this simultaneous like tension between God is so close and yet God is so far, and all of a sudden King Jesus comes together and that, that veil is torn into the Holy of Holies, and both the, that tension is now all of a sudden resolved. That's what I was saying to you last week. I quoted Tozer, I think, but you have as much of the, of the holiness of God in your life as you want. You have as much of the presence of God in your life as you want. That's a little scary to me, actually. Okay, let's keep going. Um, 
the, the, the Jewish people, the Israelites of the day, as they, as they crafted this, they, they gathered how important um, the outer court of the tabernacle, the inner court, and then the most holy place. And then they reproduced that same design when Solomon built the temple. Now, how many of you, or maybe no one has, but has anyone been to Israel? One? couple people? Anybody been to the Western Wall? Okay, I love the Western Wall. I love it. So I would actually, um, when I was there at night, um, our group would like go to bed, and uh, I'm not usually a night person, but I would get out, and I would actually go sit at the Western Wall, because after about 8 or 9 p.m., the only people at the Western Wall are Orthodox Jews, okay? And they would go stand right up next to this Western Wall, and um, archaeologically speaking, at the bottom, the bottom blocks of that Western Wall were put into place by King Solomon really amazing. And these Jews would go stand right up next to the wall, and they're, they're orthodox, so they're, you know, dressed, and some of them had braids, and they're actually in this um, cadence where they're speaking out the Psalms. So you'll actually see them um, sort of uh, almost bowing at the, at the waist, because they're in this cadence of, of, of reciting um, the Psalms. And the reason they stand there at the Western Wall is because that is the closest spot that they can get to the Holy of Holies. So right now the Temple Mount is, um, is taken over or owned um, by the Muslim faith, and so Jews aren't even allowed to go up there, but they will go stand next to this wall, and it's, it's um, geographically the very closest spot they can get to that holy of holy place. And it's like I stood there, and in, in some ways, every night that I was in Jerusalem, I would go, and there was a silly white chair I found, and I'd just sit in the chair, and I'd sit, and I would watch these people who are so dedicated with everything in them to get as close as they can to the very presence of God. I mean, it's a, it's a hungry group of people, but on the other hand, you flip that, you go, this is heartbreaking because our Jesus tore the veil, Yeshua, as they would have called it, tore the veil, and he stepped from that most holy place, that holy of holies, and he paved the way so that you and I can now have full unfettered access. So part of me wanted to stand up and go, hey, Jesus made a way, like you can get even closer than this. I didn't do it. No telling what would have happened to the funny, bald guy yelling at the Western Wall. But, but it was absolutely fascinating. And if we as believers can get every, anything, it is that we are living in a time and in a place that in, in some ways is so full of the presence and blessing of God because we have unfettered access into the most holy place. I mean, it is like, oh, Lord Jesus, let us get this. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 10, we're going to read about the ark. This is the Ark of the Covenant. Um, if you've seen Indiana Jones, you've seen a depiction of it. It's not fully accurate, but there's some accurate parts to that. Verse 10, um, have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out. Okay, so what kind of wood are we using? Acacia wood. Acacia wood is somewhat common. There's different versions, different types of acacia trees. So where's the gold going? Inside and outside. Okay, so when Jesus, who is fully God, comes to earth and becomes fully man, acacia wood, overlaid, inside and with, see, it becomes this prophetic picture in the Old Testament of the coming Jesus. Now, when I come to Jesus and I exchange my brokenness and my busted life, and he gives me his righteousness, right? It's that, it's that exchange life. So I give Jesus my brokenness. Jesus gives me his righteousness. All of a sudden, my 
common acacia wood self is covered with gold inside and out. So you get this picture already in the Old Testament. God is prophesying or God is saying, hey, this is what's coming. This is what is going to happen. Verse 14 uh, or verse 13, then make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They're not to be removed. Then put, the ark in, uh, then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. So what are the covenant law? Ten commandments. Absolutely right. Now, I, I want you to, to note something here. Um, in the ancient Near um, East, there's a... There's a... Um, it's like a, almost like a tradition, but, but the, uh, underneath the king's um, throne, when, that, when a king would make a covenant with another king, underneath the throne, there would be a repository. Anybody know what that is? The place where important stuff is stored. So underneath this repository, or this, this like, it's like a vault, it's like a bank vault now or whatever, but if, if, um, you know, if, if Matt's a king and I'm a king and we sign a treaty, there's two copies made. Who are they for? him and me, right? He goes back to his throne, and where does he put it? In that repository under his throne. I go back to my throne. Where do I put it? So what God is actually setting up here is this covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark becomes symbolic of the throne of God, and in it is stored the Ten Commandments, the covenant. It's this beautiful like... Okay. Verse 17 uh, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long um, and a cubit uh, and a half wide. Make two cherubim, angels, out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Okay, I'm going to skip down uh, verse 22. There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant Law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So he's talking to Moses. So let's let's make a couple notes here. Um, number one, the... Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is a box, with a, a solid box with a lid. It's made of acacia wood. It's covered with gold, associated with God's presence. Um, number two, there's, a, there's an um, oracular or oracle sort of nature um, of the Ark of the Covenant because God speaks to Moses from where? Above the box. Very interesting. No, so it never, God is not um, in the box. God is never in the box. He doesn't speak from the box. There's nothing like, there's no knobs or dials or anything weird. Um, you, you, and a lot of people would even um, thought that the ark was even um, almost like a weapon. So there are times when uh, God would have the people carry the ark of the covenant into battle at the front of the army, but that was symbolic of the throne of God. Okay, it was never a weapon. So, so what you see in the Indiana Jones movie is kind of just a Hollywood misnomer, right? It, there, it was never a weapon. It's, it's more um, Yahweh being at the helm of his army. Um, so it also holds the, the, the stone um, tablets or the covenant. You got that. And then lastly, you have this mercy seat that, that is on um, the top of it. And I'm not going to get too deep into this, but just enough to say um, 
God begins, and we're about to see it, it's so um, sort of uh, transformational if you can fully get it, but God begins to differentiate himself from all the other ancient Mideast uh, religions and cults of this time by what he's doing right here. And it happens because this mercy seat, and I don't know if that's the best translation actually, I don't know what the better translation would be, but that gives the idea that you go to it almost to appease an angry God, or you go to it to um, uh, obtain mercy. And, And what begins to be set up by God is not that, but rather the Day of Atonement happens uh, once a year, and on that day you go in, the, the sacrifice is made, and you're made new. Everything is made new. So everything is like reset. You, you know on your iPhone, if you have an iPhone or if you have an Android, whatever you have, you can actually press a factory reset button? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. and everything's what? Reset. That's kind of, I think, a better way to even think about um, what happens on this mercy seat. So when the blood is applied to the mercy seat, everything's reset as if sin didn't enter. Make sense? So it's not a sense that you're earning the mercy of God. or you're, it's, it's rather um, you follow this atoning sacrifice and uh, God resets it all. He, he cleanses everything. It's a decontamination um, rather than to appease a deity. So more on that as we go along. Um, but in every other uh, ancient Near East religion, so as you begin to look at other, other religions that are happening at this time and at this place, they are all focused on appeasing um, a, a, a deity, appeasing an angry God. So hold that, um, and, and we're going to read about the next thing God tells Moses to make. This is the table, verse 23. So this is called the table of showbread, or the table of shewbread, if you read the King James. Um, but here's what he says. Make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide, a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Also make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and put a gold molding on the rim. Make four gold rings. And then very last, I'm going to skip down to verse uh, 30. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. Okay. Let's see if I can uh, sort of open this up for you, because there's something absolutely profound here. And I I think in order to understand this, you actually have to look at the other sort of ancient Mideast um, traditions that are happening right now. So this is called, um, this this, uh, in other traditions, this idea of laying uh, bread before a deity is called called bread laying. Okay? Imagine that, right? So there are, um, there are scholars who would actually say that some of what's happening here in the Bible is a copy or um, it takes away from the deity of God or the Yahweh of God, the, the, the deity of King Jesus, because they're going, well, they're just copying what these other nations did. Now, hang with me a second. Every other ancient Near East religion, you would go and you'd put the bread before the deity, and the idea was that the deity would eat the bread. So the idea was that the deity needed uh, almost human-like sustenance to live, okay? So you you have to appease this deity. You have to put bread before the deity every day. That's in these other um, religions. Now, you have Yahweh who comes along, and he says, okay, make a table, overlay it with pure gold, and on it put the bread of the presence. Now, in Judaism, who eats the bread of the presence? The priests. Does God ever eat the bread? Okay, Lord, help us get this. John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If you look at the Greek, I think what God says, what Jesus is saying there most clearly is he says, actually, I am God. 
I am the bread of life. So what God is setting up here is he gives Moses these commands. As he's saying, make this table, overlay it with gold, put on it bread, and then the priests who walk with me are actually the ones who get to eat the bread. So what begins to get set up from eternity past is this God who not only created life, but he sustains it. You understand? So it's not that we're appeasing God or that God is this somehow human deity that needs bread to live. In fact, you have Moses who goes up the mountain. You have Jesus who enters the wilderness. Neither of them ate or drank for 40 days and 40 nights. It would seem that the closer you get to Yahweh God, you actually don't even need physical bread, right? So you have this idea all of a sudden that God is not dependent on human food. And not only that, he's committed to feeding us. Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven come down. I am the bread of life. So the priests actually eat the bread. Now flip this. Who's the priest right now? Mickey, are you a priest? Yes. (laughs) Believe it or not, who's the priest? If Jesus is in you and you're in Jesus, who's the priest? Catherine, are you a priest? Yes. I mean, we don't think like that, but you guys got to almost get this. Are we, we become a kingdom of priests. So God has ordained that we become priests. So as priests, what do we eat? The bread of heaven, the bread of life. So you get this like massive paradigm shift where Yahweh God comes in and says, make this bread laying station. But instead of the bread laying station being used to feed me as this grand deity, no, 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 I'm a creator God who has come to serve you. I'm a creator God who has come to give you the bread of life. I'm a creator God that has come to infuse you with life and love and power. I'm a creator God who has called you to be a kingdom of priests. I'm a creator God who is here to sustain and meet all of your needs. It's this massive um, sort of cataclysmic shift from religion being this way that we earn our way to God or we have to do certain things or appease this angry God. All of a sudden, this is the God who has come down from heaven who wants to um, uh, feed us totally transformational in terms of old um, religious systems at the time. It's absolutely different. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I will provide for you physically. I will provide for you sustenance. So what are the Israelites eating while they're in the desert? What was manna? From where? Kingdom of? Priests, eating on the bread of, yeah, profound, that this is the God who shifted everything, who changed everything. This is why I can say Christianity is real. Jesus is real. This is the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. All right, let's keep going into the lampstand, verse 31. Make a lampstand of pure gold. This is the one that was made with $3 million of gold, by the way, (laughs) in today's terms. Hammer out its base and shaft. Make it uh, its flower-like cups, bud and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side, three on the other. This is called a menorah. Those of you who don't know, but three cups shaped like almond flowers and buds and blossoms are to be on one branch. Then I'm going to go down to the very end. I'm going to skip down. Um, Verse 39, a talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all of its accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern I have shown you on the mountain. Now, all right, let's, let's pause here a minute. 
there are all sorts of uh, scholars and theologians who say um, that uh, Yahweh God was not real or did not exist. They're now looking back, but they're saying it, it did not happen because this lampstand was a, um, a copy of something that they'd seen in Egypt. So now, now go there a second. Let's just talk about that for just a second. Okay, so um, how many years, anybody remember, that were the Israelites enslaved in Egypt? Yeah, so there, there are several hundred years. So was anybody alive at this moment who was not enslaved in Egypt? No. Okay, so everyone that is alive that is traveling with this two and a half million people lived in Egypt. So the artisans, the goldsmiths, the bronzesmiths, the silversmiths, the people who sew, the people, all the things that the people know, where did they learn how to do it? Egypt. So when God says build this and do it like this, there is going to be some um, stylistic elements that resemble what? I mean, it, it, for me, it's just like, well, of course there's some style. They don't know anything else, right? So if God showed up today and said, Michael, build a house, what kind of house am I going to build? Probably a stick-built house, right? With lumber. If you show up in the Middle East, even in, in Jerusalem today, and God showed up to somebody and said, build a house, what are they going to think? Stone. Stone house. If you showed up to an American Indian before white Europeans showed up here and, said, and God said, build a house, what are they going to build? A tent. If you showed up to a Bedouin right now, even a Palestinian Bedouin even today, and said, build a house, what are they going to build? A tent. So here's my point is there are so many um, scholars that want to discredit the work of God and Yahweh. And actually, I think when you get into it, all of this holds water with such like watertight veracity that it is so he is such an intentional God. The, the other thing that, that we've mentioned before, but I think is worth mentioning again here is there are scholars who go, well, uh, it's really no miracle that the migratory birds, the quail that the Israelites ate, uh, that they ate all those quail because there's a migratory pattern that goes right through the desert. Okay, okay that's true. They're right. Okay, and I, they also go, well, it's really no big deal that water came out of this rock because there's a natural spring that's already been there. Okay, but I go, take a step back and think of this God as way bigger. This is the God, the creator God, who knew two and a half million people were going to be at this point in time on this day, and I'm going to put a living water well there for them, and I'm going to have the quail go through, and I'm going to uh, actually uh, foreordain that I would have all of their needs met before they ever get there. You hear it? So this becomes this like, oh, God is so much bigger even than our, our, um, our great scholars of the day. This is the God who was, who is, and who is to come. So when God said, make the menorah, is there going to be some Egyptian flair? I don't know how there couldn't have been. They don't know anything else. I'm like, so? That was my answer to the <laughs> liberal scholars. So What? Okay, First uh, Samuel three three calls the menorah the lamp of God. John eight twelve, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, "I am the light of the world." Okay, so again we see Matthew five fourteen. Jesus said, "You are the light of the." Okay, so let's open this up just a minute. The menorah, three million dollars of gold. Here it is, this big standing thing with. Six or seven candles burning out, one in the middle, depends how you count them, and three on each side. Who's the menorah a symbol of? That's good. All right, so let's go there a second. So on the day of Pentecost, Acts 1 and 2, 
uh, when the people are baptized in the Spirit, what appears above their head? Flames. What's lit on the top of the the menorah? Flames. Absolutely. Is it a picture of the Holy Spirit? Yes, totally agree. Prophetic foretelling. Who else is the uh, the menorah a picture of? Let's go back. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. It's a picture of Jesus. Then Jesus shifts it and says, you are the... Okay, so who's the menorah a picture of? Jesus. Who else? Who else? Okay. So Jesus, the menorah is a picture of Jesus. Great. The menorah is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Carry back here. The menorah is a picture of us. One more thing. The menorah is a picture of what? The body of Christ, the church. So from eternity past, as God is telling Moses how to make these things, he is saying, make things that become a shadow and a prototype of King Jesus, of the bride of Christ, of the individuals who will walk with him, and and make sure that the people know that I'm not a God who is asking them to come and appease me. Rather, I'm a God who's here to feed them and provide them with sustenance. I'm a God who wants to come to earth and actually bless them, keep them, give them the bread of life, give them the light of life, and then as they eat of that bread, as they take on the light of that life, they actually go out and become the bread of life and become the light of life. You get it? It's this, it's this powerful, profound sort of like, oh my goodness, who was the tabernacle? Jesus. Who was the tabernacle? The Holy Spirit. Who was the tabernacle? Us. Who's the tabernacle? The church. It's like, oh. God created us and he sustains us. I love that he is not here for us to sustain him. Rather, he is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. And then he calls us to go and be the same. So powerful. As we close today, here's what I want you to do. Let's close our eyes and let's pray here a second. Father, if I had anything in my heart for this church on this day, it is that we would grasp with a greater height and depth that you are the God who wants to dwell in us. That you are the God who wants to give us the light of life. You are the God who wants to give us the bread of heaven. You are the God who wants to keep us and sustain us and bless us and make a way for us and watch out for us. And you've prepared for everything in our life before we even arrive at the place where we're arriving. Father, I pray for every person in here. I pray for every person even listening online that you would take our faith to a new level. Father, I pray that we would begin to see ourselves and grasp ourselves as that ordinary acacia wood that gets covered with the gold of your presence inside and out. That we would begin to see ourselves and grasp our identity, that we are that menorah fashioned and hammered by you and created to be the light of life. 
Father, I pray that uniquely in this church at this time and then in the capital C church across America and around the world, that you would reignite the church with your spirit and your presence. Father, this is so much more than just a gathering or a motivational speech. This is a place where we interact with one another and we recognize that we are filled with the very king of heaven and earth. Father, would those tongues of fire that rested on the believers in Acts 2, would they come again and rest on your body, your bride, on this church? Father, would you allow us to recognize that everything in the old screams the name of Jesus and everything in the new lifts up the name of Jesus and King Jesus is lifted up above all as this loving, heavenly Father. Holy Spirit, would you come into this house, come into this place, and would you fill us with that bread of presence? Father, would you allow us to be a people that gets up and embraces that relationship with you, that good morning, heavenly Father, good morning, Lord Jesus. And Father, I pray you transform us, not just once, but every day until the day that we breathe our last and enter into eternity. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.